I'm the good shepherd. It's Jesus speaking. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. At that time, uh, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, whom the word of God, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your word that on every page points us to your steadfast love, your grace. And uh, Lord, your grace uh, far surpasses our understanding. Your, your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. And, um, and we need your Holy Spirit now to come and explain these words from our Lord and uh, apply them to our hearts and our minds that we might rest in your truth. And so uh, send your spirit to be our teacher now. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are talking about one of the most core uh, beliefs here at uh, Christ Church Bellingham, the doctrines of grace. And for most of you, when you hear that expression, the doctrines of grace, it probably has a, a happy ring to it. And it might be that maybe you've been in church much of your life and, and, uh, and you haven't heard about grace. And so I know some people come here and you say, wow, to hear about grace every week, is, it's such a relief. It's like a burden has been taken off my shoulders to hear that I don't have to earn God's approval by my good works, but that, uh, that he loves me because of what Christ has done for us in grace. 
It's good news. And grace is definitely one of the most important concepts to understand about who God is and understand about our life together here at Christ Church. But oftentimes when churches say that they're all about grace, uh, it can be a kind of cheap or shallow grace that basically turns God into a teddy bear who just, God just loves you no matter what, you know. And, uh, but the grace of the Bible is a, a far more sobering, humbling, also a far more hopeful and powerful and robust concept than simply God loves you no matter what. Because I, the Bible says that grace, um, or grace says that we are, we are so lost without Christ that we can do nothing to save ourselves. And so every step of our salvation from beginning to end is done by God's saving acts. We are not saved by what we do, but by what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do in the future. And so the story of our salvation is that we are all, we're all so deep in the pit of sin that the, uh, we were spiritually dead, we were lifeless, and the sovereign arm of God had to reach down into the pit and raise us from the dead that we might live for him. That is what grace is. And so if we want to be a church that's really defined by grace, grace that has some teeth to it, that uh, has some substance to it, we need a robust doctrine of grace. And that's what we're talking about this morning. And this passage is one of the most classic uh, passages passages teaching about the doctrines of grace. And it's particularly important because these teachings we hear coming from the mouth of our Lord. And so, uh, so what are the doctrines of grace? Well, we're going to look at Two simple statements this morning. This is what the doctrines of grace are. That first, our sin has so thoroughly infected our whole person that second, God's grace must thoroughly accomplish our salvation. Our sin has thoroughly infected our whole person and so God's grace must thoroughly accomplish our salvation. Two points this morning, and it's such an, an important doctrine. And so this is probably more of a theological sermon. You know, not a lot of stories and illustrations going through, so you've got to stay with me. Also, we're, we're probably going to focus on the first column of the passage I just read. We're going to deal with, I know there's some other questions in this passage, but there are some verses that are so important that we've got to give them extra attention. So, so two, uh, two points this morning. The first is this. Our sin has thoroughly infected our whole person. And traditionally, this is called the, the doctrine of total depravity. Maybe some of you have heard that expression, total depravity, before. It comes uh, largely from Romans 3 is one of the, the, the classic passages on that. This is what Romans 3 says. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. And by the way, you know, when it says worthless, it doesn't mean that you're a piece of trash or anything like that. It just means we're worthless when it comes to doing good. We're not useful for God's kingdom is because we're so selfish that we're not useful for loving our neighbors. And so it says they've become worthless. No, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. 
The, the mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The things we say, the things we do, the things we seek after, our deepest desires, the whole of our person is by nature hostile to the love of God and the love of our neighbor. Sin has thoroughly infected our whole person. So Paul goes on to say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is a sobering assessment of human nature. Now, let me just be clear about one thing that total depravity does not mean. It does not mean that human beings are, you know, trash and can never do anything good. Or if someone's not a Christian, they can never do a good thing. Theologians throughout history have recognized that God has given his common grace to all people. All people are made in his image. And that means non-Christians absolutely do things. We all know non-Christians who maybe, you know, have a good marriage or they run their business well. And we would want to emulate them and learn from them. So that's not what total depravity means. It means that every part of us has been affected by sin. So Herman Bovink, the great Dutch uh, theologian, he puts it this way. Sin holds sway over the whole person, over mind and will, heart and conscience, soul and body, over all one's capacities and powers. That means that without the renewal of the Holy Spirit, every part of us, mind, body, and soul, will live hostile to and independent of the knowledge of God. That's our nature. Now, this really isn't that happiest doctrine in the Bible. Um, But uh, you need to understand the disease if you're going to understand the cure. The grace of God is the cure. And we need to be soberly honest about what the disease is. And this passage points out two areas in particular about our lives that are affected by sin. The first is that sin has affected even our ability to reason. It's affected our minds. And you see what this passage says, verse 22. It says, at that time, uh, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, the feast of dedication we know more commonly as Hanukkah. See that it happened in winter. You know, Hanukkah happens in December and usually. And, uh, and Hanukkah was celebrating something that happened 200 years before Jesus' ministry. There was a Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes who had overrun Jerusalem. And he'd come into the Jewish temple and he set up a pagan altar inside the Jews' temple. It was just horrifying to them. And so the Jews rallied together and they were going to, you know, take on their oppressors. And so through guerrilla warfare, basically, they reclaimed Jerusalem. And they were led by uh, uh, Judas Maccabees was, was their leader. And, uh, and so Hanukkah was remembering. It was really a political overthrow. So it was a very political holiday. So they've got Hanukkah on their mind. And, and now the Jews in Jesus' day were now, they weren't living under the Syrians. They were living under the Romans who were their oppressors. And they were waiting for the Christ, the Messiah, who's going to be a better Judas Maccabees, who is going to come and take on the Romans. And so these Jews, they come to Jesus and they say, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Has the time come for you to free us from our oppressors? And, uh, and that's, uh, but Jesus had been telling them plainly that he was the Christ. If you were here last week, 
You know, the passage where he says, I'm the good shepherd. And if you were a Jew and you knew the Old Testament, you would know the good shepherd was the son of David. David was a shepherd. He shepherded Israel. And the Messiah was the son of David. And so he, when he says, I'm the good shepherd, I am the Christ. I'm tell, I've told you plainly. Uh, but they did not want to hear that because he wasn't the kind of Christ that they were hoping for. And that's why in verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. He says, I told you by my words and my actions, but you don't want to hear the truth. So they present themselves as very willing to reason. They're like, just tell us plainly. Are you the Christ or are you not the Christ? But there are clearly data points that they are refusing to face. Even though Jesus was answering their questions, they couldn't hear it. Their sinful desires to form an army inhibited their ability to reason well. Now, we live in an age that celebrates our ability to reason. You know, we're enlightened people. We live in a scientific age. You know, it's very common for someone to say, you know, I'm a very logical person. I just need everything logically, you know, or I'm a very scientific-minded person. And we rarely think that we're using our reason to justify really what we want to do. That that's mainly what we use our reason for is to justify ourselves. And it's not only true in, you know, religious matters or political matters. It's true in science. You know, over the last century, I think people have become more aware of the bias that we bring into a lot of our science. So, for example, if you're a researcher and you have a, get a grant for a hypothesis you have, you want to go study some hypothesis, and, you know, your grant money is tied up with the data that you get. And if all the data is showing that your hypothesis is wrong, you know, you're going to be inclined to look at the data that supports your hypothesis, not the, the, the data that uh, says it goes against your hypothesis. Uh, how much more if your heart is bent on being your own God? And all of us have either, you know, we've either been that person or we've known that person it doesn't matter how, many, how much you prove through reason that Jesus is the Messiah or, or we're sinners and we, God is real. I mean, it doesn't matter if the heart is closed. You know, the heart has its own reason that it is following. And the mind is going to follow that. Sin has infected our whole person, so we're not going to be open. And so total depravity says that our sin has affected us not just morally, but actually in our intellect as well. We often don't think that way. So first, it affects our ability uh, to reason. The second thing is that sin affects our ability to believe. Not only our ability to reason, but our ability to, to, to believe. And that's the emphasis of verse 25 there. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I did in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Jesus is saying they can't believe because they're not a part of his flock. And by the way, if you're here uh, and you're not a Christian, and you, might, you should know, well, the Bible does tell you you should believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God who's come to save us from our sins. But the Bible also says you can't just do that. You can't just believe. 
our, you know, you just think about it. all of us have the capacity to receive life and so many good gifts from God for like decades. I mean, it's possible to receive food and you're, he'll beat your heart and he'll make your brain work and he'll give you friends and he'll give you a job and he'll give you a shelter and he'll give you clothes and he'll let you go skiing and he'll let you go hiking. And he does all these things and you can go decades and not even acknowledge him, not give him thanks, not offer your life back to him and say, wow, you give me all these things. How could I serve you? I mean, it is possible for us to totally ignore him. And unless there is a supernatural change to our nature, we will not turn to him because we want to be our own gods. And that means that we are lost on our own. Now, this is a dire view of human nature. It might sound depressing. You know, we can't reason. We can't believe. No one is righteous. We can't save ourselves. But it's important to recognize that the greatest human minds have made a similar dire evaluation of human nature. Immanuel Kant, the great philosopher, says every man has his price for which he will sell himself. Pascal says man is only a disguise, a lie and hypocrisy, both within himself and with respect to others. Thomas Hobbes said man to man is a wolf. Without the state, human society would degenerate into a war of all against all. And actually, even Darwin, what, is, what does Darwin say that we are? All, Darwin says that all life comes from us, the survival of the fittest, us scrapping for our own, that our very nature is about serving ourselves. Every honest thinker confirms what the scripture tells us. No one is righteous, not one. And so this is the first doctrine of grace. We need to know how deep the pit is that we have fallen into before we can know how far God has reached to pull us out of it. And our sin has thoroughly inf infected our whole person, including our reason and our even ability to believe in him. And if you think, you know, how is that a doctrine of grace? I, I want to read a quote, another quote from Bavink for you, from you. This is it was a long quote that was so good, so I chopped it down. But this is what he says. It's not Scripture alone that judges humans harshly. It is human beings who have pronounced the harshest and most severe judgment on themselves. And it is always better to fall into the hands of the Lord than into those of people, for his mercy is great. For when God condemns us, he at the same time offers his forgiving love in Christ. But when people condemn people, they frequently cast them out and make them the object of scorn. When God is honest with us about our sin, it's an opportunity to experience his grace. And I, I, I love what he says, you know, that, that if Darwin says it's our very nature to be selfish, can you not be selfish? <laughs> no, that's like how we became alive. But if the Bible says we were made good by God and we have a disease of sin, there is hope that we can be healed. And that is the hope of grace. So total depravity is a doctrine of grace. But this, of course, raises the question, if we can't do anything to save ourselves, how do you become a part of Jesus' flock, one of his sheep? Do you believe and then become a part of his flock or does he add you to his flock and so then you can believe? Well, this passage seems to say that it's the second option. He counts us as a part of his flock first so that we can believe. 
And so that leads to our second point. Our first point is that sin has thoroughly infected our whole being. So second, God's grace must thoroughly accomplish our salvation. God's grace must thoroughly accomplish our salvation. And how does God accomplish our salvation? Three ways that we see in this passage. First, by God the Father choosing us unconditionally. How does God accomplish our salvation? God the Father chooses us unconditionally. What that means is that if if we're spiritually dead without Christ, we cannot choose God. He must choose us. And the Bible is very clear about this, that that, uh, the Father chose Jesus' sheep before the worlds began. And uh, the reason I say that he chose us unconditionally is because the Bible doesn't say that, you know, God saw before he made the world that Nate would believe in him and I'd be a pastor and I'd teach the Bible and say, you know, well, maybe he'd be a good guy to choose. And so I'll choose him because, no, now it's saying it's really up to me that because of the things I did that he chose me. And that would mean it was, it was because of something in me. But the Bible says it is because of something in him that he chooses us, his love and his grace. And you might say, are you telling me that there are some people in the world that God chose to follow Jesus and the rest of the people he didn't? You really believe that? Well, what other explanation is there for why some people follow Jesus and others don't? What other explanation? The only other explanation you could give is that some people made a decision and other people didn't. But now all of a sudden, you're saying it's up to us. That's why. You see the difference. This is where the rubber meets the road about grace. Because remember, grace is about what God does and not what we do. What is the determining factor in my whole existence? Is it something that I did that I made a decision? Or something God did that he chose me based on nothing I did but by sheer grace? And, you know, by the way, a church is going to put an emphasis on one of these two things. And, you know, if a church puts an emphasis on you better make the right decision, guess what you're going to be hearing a lot about? You better make that decision. Did you really make the decision? Maybe you should make the decision five times. You know, some of you maybe had to get baptized a bunch of times because you weren't sure if it ever really stuck because the accent is on our decision. It's not on God's sovereign grace. And you look at this passage. How does Jesus view things in this passage? Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus says the reason people listen to him and follow him is because they are his sheep and he knows them. You are first a sheep, and then you believe and follow. And how did they become his sheep? Verse 29 tells us, My father who has given them to me, is greater than all. The Father, the sovereign Lord, who is greater than anything and anyone, who is the king of all creation and all history, gave Jesus' flock to him. Which means if you belong to Jesus, if you're a part of his uh, flock, you were a gift from the Father to the Son. And not because of anything in you, but purely because of God's grace. You were a gift to the Son. Now, I know that there are two sides to this doctrine. Because on the one hand, this is, of course, really beautiful. I mean, there's just such a deep security in thinking that my salvation is accomplished by Jesus, right? You know, I tell my kids when they're growing up and, uh, you know, 
they profess their faith in, in Jesus, I would say, you know the reason that you believe in Jesus? It's because the Holy Spirit, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. The Holy Spirit taught you that. And, it, and the reason is because God chose you before he even made the universe. He knew you and he set his love upon you. And he placed you in this family where you were going to hear the gospel and you're going to hear the scriptures. And they placed you in this church where all these people are going to love you and befriend you and model the gospel for you and sing alongside you and talk about the gospel. And then he's planned good works for you that they're already planned for your whole life. You just have to walk in them. Like your service to him he even planned and has provided for you. The whole thing, rest in that. Don't be anxious about your life. Like trust, you are Jesus' beloved sheep. You get an identity from the beginning. It's incredible security. But then there's the other side. Because some of you would ask, but what about the people God hasn't chosen? What if I'm not chosen? Well, first, when it comes to the question, are you chosen? I would just ask the question, do you listen to the voice of Jesus the Good Shepherd? Do you hear him? Do you hear him right now? These are his words we're talking about. And when he talks, does it move you? Now listen, you're a sheep. You wander. That's what sheep do. You wander off. Of course, that happens to all sheep. That's expected. He knows that's going to, he's going to come and get you. He's going to bring you back. But the question ultimately is, when Jesus speaks, do you say, that's my shepherd, and I ultimately listen to him? That's the voice that I follow. Then you are his sheep. But still, you might say, what about people God hasn't chosen? Which people are you, which person are you talking about that God hasn't chosen? You do, anyone living right now, you cannot say that God hasn't chosen them. We don't know that about anyone. And if God chose me with all my sins and problems, he could choose anyone. He transforms people. We do not know that. The only thing we could maybe say that about is people that we are absolutely sure what they were thinking when they died, which is a very small amount of people. And the truth is we don't know who God has chosen or why he chooses the people the way he does. We also know that Jesus says in John 6, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And in 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, God desires that all men be saved. So the doctrine of election is a mystery and it should stay a mystery, but it is essential if we are going to have a robust view of God's grace. If my life in the Lord is about grace, then it means he chose me. He set his love on me before I ever set my love on him. Okay, so, that's, so how does God accomplish our salvation? First, God the Father choosing us unconditionally. Second, by Jesus the Son laying down his life for his sheep. By Jesus the Son laying down his life for his sheep. And this raises a, a second question. When Jesus died on the cross, who did he die for? And many of you, if I ask you that question, who did Jesus die on the cross for? We may say he died on the cross for everyone. He died on the cross for the sins of the world. And there are scriptures that point in that direction. Certainly, uh, you know, John 3.16 is the most famous. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that whoever believed in him would not perish and have eternal life. Actually, more pointedly in 1 John 2.2, this is 1 John says, he is the propitiation for our sins. That means he's the sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So on the one hand, it seems like Jesus, well, he died for the sins of the whole world. But what does this passage say that we're looking at? Verse 14. 
I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And as we've already mentioned, verse 29, the sheep are those that were given to Jesus by the Father. Uh, Jesus lays down his life. He dies personally for people. The people that were given to him as a gift. You know, I was talking to Terry Harden between, and she was like drilling this home for me. She's just like, he knows, he's not just like generally like, yeah, I got this open offer for people. He knows his sheep personally, and his blood is not wasted, right? When he dies for someone, he has purchased them. They are precious to him. And so how do we reconcile these two things? Did Jesus die for everyone or just for his sheep? Well, traditionally, theologians have done some version of what Augustine taught, that Christ's death was sufficient for all people. You don't, you don't want to put a limit on how powerful Jesus' death was. Sufficient for all, but it was effectual. It was aimed at those he had set his love on. It was personally applied. It's effectual. And so it means that if Jesus died for you, you will be saved. He didn't try to save you. And if your sins have been paid for on the cross, then you are forgiven. And if he nailed your sins to the cross, then your sin has lost its power. And if Jesus died for you, he has accomplished your salvation through and through. He's conquered not only your guilt, he's conquered your hard, disbelieving heart. He has taken your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. He himself dove down into the pit where we lay dead, and he has carried us up into the light and brought us back from the dead. Now, why is this important as a doctrine of grace? Well, if you say that Jesus makes salvation possible for you, it means ultimately your salvation is up to you. Are you going to take hold of it? It's, you know, it's in the... It, it, uh, we're waiting for you to act. And, and you might think this is kind of doctrinal nitpicking. But these kind of doctrines will set the tenor of a church and how we talk about God. Where is the accent? Is the accent on your decision, your obedience, your offering yourself? Or is the accent on all of God's acts and that he has done to accomplish our salvation? You're going to put the accent on one of them. And what we're saying here is we're going to put the accent on God's supreme grace and sovereign grace. Okay? So how has God uh, accomplished our salvation? First, the Father has chosen us unconditionally. Second, the Son laid down his life for his sheep. But third, he's accomplished our salvation by the Holy Spirit completing the work begun in us. The Holy Spirit completes the work that was begun in us. And this comes from uh, Philippians 1.6, which says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How are we going to make it? You and I are going to make it to the end of this journey that we have before us? The Holy Spirit's going to finish the work. God's going to finish the work that he began. Because it wasn't up to us to save ourselves, and it's not ultimately up to us to preserve ourselves to the end. And you can see on this passage, Jesus says how the Holy Spirit is going to change our nature. Like, you look at these sheep, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I think that's important because, you know, if, if, if anyone thinks that God's grace means that we should be inactive or we have no part to play in our spiritual lives, that's not what Jesus teaches. He says we need to hear the shepherd's voice and we need to follow him. 
That means listen to the word of God and obey him. We are called to do that. And you won't experience the assurance of your salvation. You won't know the assurance of your salvation unless you hear your shepherd and you follow him. That's why, you know, like coming to church, you, the reason you need to come to church is you're not going to know about this grace that has surrounded you, that has covered your life unless you hear about it here. The world's not going to tell you about God's grace. This is, so you've got to come here. You have to be active. But even though you have to listen to Jesus and follow him, that doesn't mean it is up to you to make it through the journey of life. Because what does Jesus say here? Verse 28. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus says, no one's going to snatch them out of my hand. And my Father, who's given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus got his hand on us. The Father's got his hand on us. The Holy Spirit's in us working. Listen to how thorough God's grace is. The Father choosing us before history. The Son laying down his life in the middle of history. The Holy Spirit completing his work in us to the end of history. The Father, Son, and Spirit are in you and around you and above you, before you in time, after, ahead of you in time. And uh, so what does it mean to believe in grace? Well, Paul puts it this way in Romans. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Our sin has far more thoroughly infected our whole person than we ever imagined. It affected our ability to even reason and think and our ability to believe. So we cannot save ourselves, but God's grace far outruns our sin. And so he has thoroughly accomplished every part of our salvation from beginning to end. So my friends, this morning, I invite you to rest in the robust doctrines of grace displayed for you in the scriptures and coming from the voice of your good shepherd who loves you and wants you to know that you are secure in his flock. Praise be to God. Let's pray.